Since you're always the one bringing up the previous episodes, I thought I'd take over on that this week. Okay. (laughs) Since last time I had talked about the first Australian woman to be sentenced with life imprisonment without parole. Right. And we were talking about wondering who the first U.S. Yes. Yeah. So I tried looking into the, who the first woman in the U.S. was to get life in prison without possibility of parole, but I couldn't find a definitive answer. Okay. Like, each one was a different answer, which was kind of annoying, because, like... You didn't go through and scour all the prison records throughout <laughs> the country? Uh, I didn't have enough time to do that. Oh, okay. Well, if you're going to slack like that, then... <laughs> all right. Uh, what do you got, though? But I... Did end up looking into the first woman that was executed by the U.S. government and got more of an answer for that. However, the information was still kind of inconclusive. But as far as I was able to tell, a woman by the name of Mary Surratt, I think that's how you pronounce it, became the first woman to ever be executed by the United States government on July 7th, 1865 at 1.22 p.m., if that matters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) Allegedly, she was part of John Wilkes Booth's plot to disrupt the Union government by killing President Abraham Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, and Secretary of State William Seward. Oh, really? I thought it was just Lincoln they were after. Well, I think Lincoln was the only one assassinated, right? Right, right, yeah. But But there was a whole group. I didn't know that there was a whole group that was I didn't either. I thought it was just the one guy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, apparently she was part of that, which I did not know. I thought that was interesting. A little bit of a history lesson, I guess. (laughs) But I think if there's anything interesting in that or enough, it'd be an interesting story to do. But I'm not going to make promises. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But yeah. Alrighty. Interesting. So now we know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But next time I'll make sure to look into the government prison documents to get the answer, not slack. Shh. (laughs) they might be listening (laughs) but for legal reasons i'm joking (laughs) yes (laughs) what do you have tonight so tonight i am talking about the murder of colleen ritzer who is colleen ritzer she was a 24 year old math teacher at danvers high school in massachusetts she was well loved and really connected with her students She'd often stay after school to help tutor those who were struggling with the material. On October 22, 2013, she asked one of her students, 14-year-old Philip Chisholm, to stay after school to talk to her. He recently moved from Clarksville, Tennessee, and appeared to be shy. A peer of his stated that when Miss Ritzer started a conversation about Tennessee, Chisholm got visibly upset, but as soon as she noticed, she changed the topic. The exact reason as to why he got upset is unknown, but it is believed that it triggered thoughts of his parents' divorce. Why does the name Danvers sound so familiar? I don't even remember her name, but from Supergirl? Okay, so, okay, that's that's where it was. It was just bugging me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. 
No, I thought about that when I was researching. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. At 2.54 p.m., Miss Ritzer headed to the second floor bathroom, and moments later, surveillance cameras caught Chisholm also leaving the classroom, heading towards the women's bathroom. He walked with his jacket hood, concealing most of his face. As he entered the bathroom, he put gloves on his hands and pulled out a sharp box cutter. He startled her from behind and slashed her throat 16 times before brutally assaulting her. At 3.06 p.m., a female student walked in as Chisholm was finishing up and was putting his pants back on, but abruptly left thinking that she had just seen someone changing. The school surveillance camera caught Chisholm calmly exiting the bathroom with his hand covered in blood. Jeez. Ten minutes later, Chisholm returned to the bathroom wearing a different jacket and was rolling a green recycling bin. He allegedly had packed a change of clothes, a ski mask, and gloves in his backpack before attending school that day. At 3.22, Chisholm leaves the bathroom in the ski mask while pulling the bin into an elevator and then out the building. So he went in without wearing the ski mask, and then he came out with it on? Yeah. That's bizarre. Well, no, he had his face covered with his hood, but when he went to go get the recycling bin, that's when he had the ski mask on. Oh, okay. Yes. Security cameras placed outside of the school showed him taking the bin that then contained her body to a nearby wooded area. Police suspected that she may have still been barely alive during this time. He dumped her body onto the ground and then shoved a tree branch into her. He posed her body in a sexually violating way with her shirt pulled up and her legs spread. Before leaving the scene, he left a note that said, quote, I hate you all, end quote. Chisholm left the scene on foot with his jeans covered in blood, and at 3.30 p.m., another student's mother saw him running away from the school to which she told the principal around 6 p.m. that day. So bizarre that he must have known there were security cameras. Because yeah. he was trying to cover his face. Yeah. But how could he possibly think that nobody would figure out who it was? Yeah. Yeah, no. Especially since it seems like they were clothes he were wearing all day, so it had to have been on a security camera Yeah. all day. Bizarre. Yeah. At 6.34 p.m., Chisholm's mother, Diana Chisholm, called the police that her son appeared to be missing after she couldn't find him on the school campus. At 9 p.m., the high school principal sent out a mass email to the high school staff reporting Chisholm missing. Shortly after the email was sent, another math teacher called the principal to mention that Ritzer's parents, Tom and Peggy, had told her that their daughter was missing. The teacher was concerned that both her colleague and a student were missing and told the principal that Chisholm was in Ritzer's last class of the day. Investigators were told that the principal and others went to the school to look for Ritzer and noticed her car was still in the parking lot. Around 11.20 p.m., Ritzer's parents reported their daughter missing. Police were able to ping the last location of her phone in the area of a local middle school. Wait, so all this time, nobody had looked at the security video yet? No. That's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Especially when two people are missing. Right. Meanwhile, Chisholm had used his teacher's credit card to buy fast food and a movie ticket at a local movie theater. At 12.30 a.m., Chisholm was found in a nearby town of Topsfield, walking along a highway. When police searched the backpack he was carrying, they found a bloody box cutter. He told the officers that the blood came from, quote, the girl. 
end quote. So he wasn't even trying to cover up what he had done. No. Which is odd because he had done the whole ski mask thing and everything. Yeah. But then he's carrying around the box cutter. Yeah, it's, it's odd. Authorities also found Miss Ritter's credit card, driver's license, and her underwear in his possession. He first told them he found them at a gas station and then later claimed he took them out of Ritter's car. He was then arrested. This is kind of like last week where, you know, he's doing things that make him seem like a serial killer. Yeah. Like this just wasn't a one-off killing, that he's collecting trophies. He had positioned her. A certain way. A certain way. Yeah, just bizarre. Yeah, it, yeah. It's scary is what it is, especially since he was 14. Right. Yeah, that's just unbelievable. Yeah. In the early morning of October 23rd, Ritzer's body was found during a search of the Danvers High School grounds and the adjacent wooded area. The recycling bin was found 20 yards from the body, while clothing and other belongings were scattered nearby. After enough evidence, Chisholm was charged with rape, robbery, and murder. While awaiting his trial in 2014, Chisholm committed a chillingly similar attack on another female staff member in the youth facility he was staying in. This time, he made sure he wasn't being watched by anyone when beginning his attack. Chisholm took his shoes off so his steps wouldn't make noise when he would sneak up on her. As the 29-year-old woman walked into a locker room, he slammed her against the wall, choked, punched, and stabbed her with a pencil. The woman was saved after a staff member heard the commotion and rushed in to save her. In connection to that crime, he was charged with attempted murder by strangulation, assault with intent to murder, kidnapping, and two counts of assault and battery with dangerous weapon. So it sounds like he was a serial killer in the making. Yeah. Right, okay. A lot of anger. Yeah. In 2016, he was tried as an adult and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Just 40 years? Yes. For the killing, raping, and robbing of Colleen Ritzer. He had not yet been sentenced for the separate charges he gained for attacking the staff member while in custody. Well, even the, the killing, 40 years is all? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. But that's it. That's as much information as I have now. I know he's obviously still in prison, and he is 21 now. It's crazy to think that he could get out of prison in his 50s. Yeah. And maybe even, you know, I mean, if they're only giving him 40 years, maybe he could be up for parole before even that. Yeah, well, especially since, and I'm not saying this as any type of excuse, but especially since he was 14 at the time he committed the crime. Right. I mean, he was tried as an adult, but I feel like that wouldn't really stop anyone from pulling an insanity plea. I'm surprised they didn't go with the insanity plea to begin with. Yeah. Everything he did was... Clearly insane. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of anger. And a lot of it, they said that he got triggered by her bringing up Tennessee. Basically, he was trying to blame her for her own death. So was there any information about what in Tennessee or what in his childhood would have triggered this? The only thing that they suspected was the divorce between his parents I guess it was a pretty messy divorce, but other than that, I couldn't find anything about what happened in Tennessee. 
there had to be more going on or he was born that way going yeah. back to the nurture or nature nature yeah because i i can't see how a messy divorce is going to trigger a psychopath well i mean if you're already a psychopath like that's you what said. i'm saying oh, okay. he must have already been like that yeah yeah right. you know maybe that was the trigger yeah you know how you hear about you know people who could have been serial killers but for whatever reason they just never acted on it yeah that type of thing I wouldn't be surprised, unfortunately, if he ever did become a serial killer. But I think, thankfully, they were able to catch him. Right. I also remember reading that this was a small town of 26,000 people. So I am actually surprised that they had as many security cameras as they did. What are you implying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I feel like people feel more secure in a small town because usually people know everyone. Right, yeah. So, I don't know. I wasn't expecting that there would be many security cameras around. Very sad, tragic story. Disturbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Never ending. Alrighty, well, I guess I'll move on to what I have. So, previously we were discussing reincarnation. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, <laughs> 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 God. <laughs> And we had also talked about Houdini's desire to get a message from the spirit world. Yeah. So as another chapter in the discussion of life after death, I wanted to talk about near-death experiences, or NDEs. Who abbreviates that? Who abbreviates everything? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my God, our BMs are abbreviated. (laughs) What? Bowel movement. (laughs) (laughs) Previous that. You never heard that before? Come on. (laughs) Well, okay. Off topic. Okay. But (laughs) some things need to be abbreviated because it's just awkward if you... It's like you can't say it laughing out loud. Why not? I can see some things being abbreviated because they're awkward, like saying BM rather than bowel movement. Or you could What's just say, wrong with laughing out loud? Um, Says the, the person who doesn't like okay, okay for O-K-A-Y. <laughs> or just the K. Or just the K, yeah. When people say just the letter K, I always respond with potassium. Cause that's <laughs> <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> that's the only element I remember <laughs> the abbreviation. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to get back on topic? Yeah, yeah. All right. So I'm going to use NDE because it's hard for me to say near-death experience. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So abbreviations for people who have a hard time (laughs) speaking. For for, uh, vocabulary vocabulary impaired people. Yeah. That might be offensive. (laughs) Yes, to me. Oh, my God. OMG. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god okay where were we at so there's a lot to this topic when i was researching it so i wanted to talk about the research and debate over NDEs tonight and we can revisit the topic in the future and then i'll you know get more into some of the actual stories okay and i will say up front i don't have any answers i don't want to get anybody's hopes up listening your hopes up, listening and waiting for the big reveal. 
of whether <laughs> their near-death experiences are real or not. Yeah. But I don't have an answer. So. <laughs> okay. So if you want to check out now. I can? No, you can't. Oh, okay. So in discussing reincarnation, I talked about how Dr. Ian Stevenson founded the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia in 1967 and was at the forefront of researching reincarnation. <laughs> you, have, you look like, hmm, like we hadn't talked about this. <laughs> I just was trying to refrain from saying, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> By the way, side note. I am still working on figuring out a word for the combination. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, he, well, here's the thing, right? I don't want to use a, like a clever word that would be, you would hear the word and, oh, yeah, I remember that from my childhood or something. Yeah. You know, just a word that triggers a memory or something. Yeah. I didn't want that because then it could be something you just guessed. Yeah. I mean, off chance, but whatever. So I was trying to think of a word that isn't like overly common to where you would miss it if you got the message or picked it up. Yeah. But isn't something that, you know, something related to the podcast or your life or whatever, or my life. So I have a couple words in mind, but once I get the lock locked, I'll let you know. Oh my gosh. So yes, as I do with everything, I'm overthinking it, but I am going to get the right word. Oh, I was just going to say use random word generator <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Anyway, also part of that division at the University of Virginia is Dr. Bruce Grayson, who was at the forefront of research in NDEs. In the 1980s, he also developed a scale commonly called the Grayson Scale, which measures the different aspects of NDEs based on a questionnaire given to people who have had experiences to determine the likelihood of what they experience was actually an NDE. Hmm. Dr. Grayson's first experience with NDEs was in the 1960s when he had a patient who claimed to have left her body while unconscious and later provided an accurate description of events that happened in a different room. That's spooky. Yeah. At the time, he felt certain someone had slipped the patient information and it was just all phony yeah. or a joke or something like that. In 1975, Raymond Moody authored the book Life After Life, and coined the term near-death experience. So that was the first time that term had been used. Wow. That was when Grayson realized that the patient had experienced something that was actually a common phenomenon, and he decided to get involved in the research. Although written accounts of events that sound like NDEs date back to the Middle Ages, researchers believe they go back to the ancient times. What is believed to be the oldest known medical account was written in the 1700s by a French military doctor. Jeez. So when trying to answer the question of whether the mind or the soul, if you will, can function outside of the physical body, the interest is in finding what is called veridical NDEs. So basically that is where the person obtains verifiable information that they could not have known so a person hears or sees something in another room of the hospital or they talk to a deceased loved one that gives them information that can be verified. Yeah. With the experiences like hearing and seeing things, verification is a little trickier because 
it is possible that we could experience those things without being dead. Yeah. You know, if you think about astral projection and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not a given that if somebody experiences something like that, that they were actually dead at the time. The problem is that veridical NDAs have been found to be extremely rare. Research focusing on pre-1975 books about experiences found only 100 cases, and only 35 of those were where the author could verify information with someone other than the experiencer. But none of those cases could be actually verified without question. A 2017 study from the University of Virginia looked at whether the NDE event occurring alongside a compromised brain could be written off as imagination. 100 plus people who experienced NDEs were asked to fill out a questionnaire comparing their NDE experience with real or imagined events that occurred around the same time. So they were saying, you know, Explain your NDE and then explain things that happened in your life at that time, you know, maybe dreams that you had yeah, and stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah. What is interesting was the results showed that the experiencers felt that the NDEs were actually more real than their real or imagined experiences. Hmm. Many NDEers describe their experiences as not feeling like a dream or hallucination, but as being more real than real. That's kind of creepy. Yeah. However, a study at the University of Michigan published in 2013 took anesthetized rats and stopped their hearts. Oh. Yeah, I hope they brought them back, but I don't know how those little paddles, <laughs> those little defib paddles work. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway... Within 30 seconds, the rat's EEG brain signals flatlined, but first they spiked briefly with an intensity that suggested different parts of the brain were communicating with one another more actively than when the rats were awake. Now you talk about little tiny paddles. What about the little... Little EEG. Yeah, little stickers. <laughs> <Probes>. Yeah. <laughs> what they're suggesting is that if this happens in humans, it could be the brain going into one final spasm of hyperactivity when its supply of oxygen is cut and it's trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So maybe that's why people experience these NDEs that are more real than real because your brain is actually more active than it ever is when you're awake. Yeah. I've heard that argument before. Have you? That's, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. This also falls along with a common argument that NDEs are just a neurochemical response to trauma when the body is dying. When the brain is starved of oxygen, it was described to be like a citywide blackout. It isn't all instantaneous, but neighborhood by neighborhood begins to lose power. Yeah. That's kind of a chain reaction type of thing. Yeah. What's that? I was just saying that it's like an interesting way to put it. Yeah. So the argument is that while the brain is powering down, it is telling stories from the experiences and memories stored in the brain, just like a dream. Yeah. That's kind of sad to think we have that one last cruel where we think we're in the afterlife and all of a sudden we're just powering down. Yeah. That's sad. Disappointing. Yeah, it would be. It would be disappointing if we didn't believe in NDEs. Yeah, that's true. The interesting thing, though, is that many people who have experienced NDEs say it is difficult, if not impossible, to describe what they experience because it is so much unlike the real world. 
So to me, it's like, well, if the brain is having this last burst of activity and telling stories while it's powering down, why are the experience so unlike anything people have experienced? Because normally your dreams are about your experiences, not about things that you've never imagined before. Another interesting thing is that we only hear about positive NDE experiences, mostly. And I found this in a lot of the shows that I've seen and the reading I've done that I've only really seen or heard a couple of stories about negative experiences, hellish experiences, if you will. Hellish. <laughs> well, if you figure good experiences that this person is going up to heaven, yeah. what do you figure a bad experience has to be? <laughs> going the other way? <laughs> that makes sense. It is said that around 23% of NDEs reported our unpleasant experiences, but the bad ones get far less attention, and it seems people with those type of experience are less likely to come forward. That's sad. Yeah, so that's why we don't hear about them. One of the biggest problems with researching NDEs is that it is a retrospective study. So they're gathering information after the event occurred rather than developing experiments and testing. Yeah. Kind of hard to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you... Exactly. Yeah. Ex like, experiment that. Right. And that's, our, that's what they're saying even with the advances in technology. So the fMRI scanning that is available today is so advanced that neuroscientists can observe the thinking brain. But how could you possibly get that to be used during an NDE? Yeah. Right. There have been a few studies developed to take advantage of the fact that there are locations where NDEs most likely occur, such as hospitals. One research scenario developed is planning a perceptual stimulus so that it can only be seen by a person experiencing an NDE, such as a picture or item on top of a cabinet only visible from the ceiling. Then they would interview the potential NDEers to see if they mention the item or picture. What if they're afraid to because they're going to think that they're crazy? Yeah. Well, I guess they, they miss out on that research then. That's true. Interesting note on that was they were talking about to rule out the possibility of the interviewer intentionally or unintentionally conveying the stimulus through normal or even paranormal means. It is suggested that the stimulus not be known to any of the research team. So even the person interviewing the NDEer doesn't know about or what this stimulus is. They know that there was a stimulus, but they don't know what it was. Oh. There have been six studies that have attempted such experiments, mostly with cardiac patients, and all have failed so far to find any ironclad cases of veridical perception. The largest was the AWARE study led by Sam Parnia of the State University of New York at Stony Brook and was published in October of 2014. Fifteen participating hospitals in the U.S., U.K., and Austria installed shelves bearing a variety of images in rooms where cardiac arrest patients were likely to need reviving. One thousand shelves were installed in various locations. Jeez. So this study showed the problems there are with this type of research and how long it takes to accumulate data. Yeah. Only 22% of the cardiac arrests that occurred during the study happened somewhere with a shelf nearby. In four years, this study was able to record 2,060 of all cardiac arrests that occurred. Of those, sadly, only 330 patients survived. Oh. Yeah. 
and only 140 of them were judged well enough to be interviewed and agreed to participate. Of the 140, 101 made it past the screening interview, the others unable to continue due to their health. Of the 101, only 9 remembered experiences that counted as NDE on the Grayson scale, and only 2 remembered out-of-body experiences. That's crazy. That's like way narrowed down. Yeah. That was four years of study, too. That's crazy. One of the two became ill, so they had to stop the participation. Yeah. So that left just one, but he could not recount what he had seen in detail, and he was not in a room with one of the shelves. But the 57-year-old man described floating up to the corner of the room and seeing the medical staff working on him and watching himself being resuscitated. When matching up his description of events, researchers believe he may have seen things that happened for as long as three minutes after his heart stopped. Three minutes? Yeah. I think one of the most talked about stories regarding NDE is that of a migrant worker named quote-unquote Maria, who in 1977 had an NDE during cardiac arrest at a hospital in Seattle. She told her social worker at the hospital that she found herself floating outside the hospital building and saw a tennis shoe sitting on the ledge of a third floor window, which she is said to have described in great detail, and it was on the opposite side of the hospital from where her room was. That's weird. Yeah. The social worker went up and found the shoe and said it was in a place where there was no way Maria could have seen or known about the shoe. Are we going to talk about the concern that there was a shoe just randomly there? <laughs> yeah. <I was> like, <laughs> no. Beside the point. Yeah. Why was there a shoe sitting on a ledge? I could understand hanging from a power line. but Yeah. So that, you know, that is an interesting story, but obviously there's no way to know if Maria had previous knowledge of the shoe. Well, how would she, though? Well, it doesn't seem like she could possibly plan the whole thing because she didn't have any idea she was going to go into cardiac arrest. Yeah. But if you're looking for inarguable proof, you just don't know if she somehow knew about that shoe for some odd reason. That's true, yeah. In 1991, 35-year-old Pam Reynolds needed surgery to remove an aneurysm at the base of her brain. Concerned it might burst and kill her during the operation, doctors induced hypothermic cardiac arrest, which is chilling the body to 60 degrees, stopping the heart, and then draining the blood from her head. Mm. To make sure the brain was completely inactive during the operation, they put small speakers into her ears, what we call headphones today. (laughs) (laughs) Small speakers. (laughs) Has anybody seen my ear speakers? (laughs) The speakers played rapid clicks at 100 decibels, so that's equivalent to like a lawnmower or a jackhammer. Hmm. If any part of her mind was working and reacting to the sound, they would have been able to detect the electrical signals from her brain. Yeah. It was confirmed that for a number of minutes, she was dead both in brain and body. After the surgery, she reported having an NDE and an out-of-body experience. She described details in the room during the operation and bits of conversation the staff had. Unfortunately, none of the experiences she described occurred during that time of total... (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) Total... Complete death. What? What Total death. I don't know why I had to drop with it. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, none of the experiences she described occurred during that time of total death. They occurred before or after while she was under, but very much alive. Interestingly, this is known as anesthesia awareness and is said to affect roughly one in 1,000 patients. Mm -mm. I didn't know you could have out-of-body experiences when you were under. I think I've heard that before. Really? But I wouldn't want to experience it. I don't want to be aware when I'm having surgery. Yeah, I wouldn't want to think that I'm dying. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Also, how do they know that what conversations they were having during what part of the surgery? I don't know. Maybe they record the surgery so that they could go back and kind of match up the times with what she was saying she heard. Well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So that was it. Like I said, I would like to get into some of the other stories, some of the less common ones. Any of the hellish ones? Yeah, I'll see if I can find some. That would be interesting. Yeah. Certainly no answers, just theories at this time from both sides. I feel like it's really hard to find answers because you can't really conduct a proper test. Yeah, same thing with the reincarnation. It's really hard to, to verify. Yeah. So for now, as with religion and love, your belief in life after death will have to remain based on faith that they exist. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I had. I hope that wasn't boring. Uh, Like I said, I wanted to kind of get some groundwork and the trying to know whether it is real or not. Yeah. I mean, I really want to know, especially as I get older. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you want to know? Well, I want to know if there's a chance. Of a near-death experience? No, of life after death. Oh. I don't want to... <laughs> Not the near-death experience. I part. was going to say, why would you want to know that? No, I want to know if there's actual life after death. I feel like it's a be hopeful for it type yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's based on faith, right? Yes. But I want proof, damn it. <laughs> anyway, that's it. You got anything else? I don't think so. All right, we'll uh, wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.